good morning. It's wonderful to see everyone here and to be in this beautiful part of the world right now. As a, our, our trip up here was just glorious. Clouds and blue skies and you could smell the rain that hit the desert. It was just like pops that sage and it smells delicious. <laughs> it was a wonderful drive up here and, and what a great day it is to gather. This is the Lord's day, the day that he has made for us to rejoice and to be glad in him and that's my hope this morning is to bring the word of God, um, which is glorious and, and which can make hearts glad. And sometimes the Lord brings us gladness through conviction of sin. And yet in that, he doesn't want us to just languish as if we need to beat ourselves up. He wants us to, to grow and turn our eyes to Christ all the more so that we can uh, enjoy him. Yesterday, it was a, a real blessing to see Pastor Lynn and Denise down in Riverside uh, as you just prayed for Mark Smith. He was one of our deacons. He'd been a deacon for 27 plus years, uh, had served with Pastor Lynn when he was there. In fact, Lynn and Denise are very close friends with their family. Their oldest boy even just flew in for the day from Denver to be there because he was friends with his sons. And um, it was sad to say goodbye. Um, Mark uh, was a real servant as Pastor Robert was doing the message portion of our memorial service. He said, I'm just going to open up and just read the um, Bible's definition of what a deacon is, and, and that's Mark's eulogy. Let's just read through it. And he just went through it. And Mark faithfully, by God's grace, um, served um, and was a biblical deacon in all of that. And so we do appreciate your prayers, especially if you just continue even this week for Cindy. Two of her boys are in the military and will be going home, I think, tonight and tomorrow. And um, a couple of other boys live outside of the town. And so this coming week is really going to set in for her, uh, that her husband is gone. And even though he, as we just sang, has seen Christ face to face, um, still right now there's this already but not yet. And there, there is a, the temporary loss and grief is okay. There is a season for grief. So please continue to pray for her. It is, a, uh, as I said, a delight to be here too. Uh, in one week, I, I'm wearing my Reformed Baptist Network shirt here because in one week, the General Assembly starts, and I'm excited that your church will be coming into membership there. And um, we have, I last counted, like over 200 people will be coming to this General Assembly. It's going to be, the, I think, the largest gathering we've had, and we have the most amount of churches coming in. Um, and so it's wonderful to see this fellowship kind of continue to grow and to develop. Um, and in my prayer is that it'll be a lot like what we have had between Riverside and Ridgecrest for the last 17, 18 years now. It's been a long time. So as Adam said, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 19. And uh, I'm going to be working through this wonderful narrative. Uh, when I was here last time, I think it was the end of May uh, in, that, in that neighborhood. Maybe it was even Memorial Day weekend, I think, perhaps. But um, I, I spoke about uh, the woman who came to the Pharisee's home while Jesus was um, eating at his table there. And she came and was crying and weeping, his, uh, weeping over his feet and anointing them with, with oil. And that was one of those rare accounts that is only found in the book of Luke. And so today we're going to look at another account that only uh, Dr. Luke, as some like to call him, uh, has given us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I wrote a little devotional. I saw a few of them were back there and one of them was about him and I called him um, uh, God's, no, I called it Jehovah's Journalist. Um, because Luke really wanted to sit down and, and investigate Christ and, and what he did. So Luke has 
we believe, sat down with Mary, sat down with some of the apostles, and, and was able to pull in some of these um, inspired stories that the other Gospels don't have, but are so helpful for us. And so when we turn our eyes this morning to Zacchaeus, he is one of those stories that we don't necessarily find anywhere, anywhere else in the Gospels. And yet it's so helpful, it's so encouraging to see that time and time again, Luke reminds us that Christ's mission was to come and seek and save the lost. Amen. I mean, that is, if you were to say, hey, how can you sum up the gospel? <laughs> how could you sum up Christianity? I mean, there's many ways we could do it. But that one, just real simple sentence. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, of which I was one of those. Um, praise God for that. And, and, and I'm so thankful uh, that there's this faithful presentation here in the gospel of this story. Um, at the end of the story of the woman who was known as a great sinner, Jesus turned to her and said, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Um, um, go in peace. Uh, and in today's story, we're going to see another gospel story of a sinner totally lost in her sins, oblivious really to their sins, living a really good life as we just saw. He was, a, uh, Luke says, he was a rich man. He was the chief tax collector. We'll talk about that in a moment. And um, nevertheless, he was a man that was lost in his sins. And Jesus came to seek and to save him. So you could track along with me. I've given a little alliteration here. And so I'd like to just look at four areas in this narrative that we just heard Adam read for us. The setting, the situation, the surprise, and the salvation. Yes, they all begin with S's. That's alliteration. Setting, situation, the surprise, and salvation. And before we dive into this, let's just pray once again. Lord God, we are so grateful to be gathered together with your people this morning. And Lord, we are beyond grateful for the gift of your word to us. Lord, that you raised up people like Luke uh, and John and Matthew uh, and Mark to, to give us eyewitness accounts. Um, and, and Lord, in, in many ways like today where we have a court of law and that the testimony of three can be considered to be a credible testimony as we get different perspectives and angles and yet it's all the same story. Lord, we're so grateful that Luke gives us some unique insight under inspiration of Holy Spirit. And so Holy Spirit, come and minister to us today. Speak to us today, Lord, that we might hear you, that we might grow in you. And Lord, that we might glorify you in all that we do. And ask, we really ask for your help, Lord. Open up your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the setting, uh, as Luke says, is Jericho. Uh, Jesus is, is, is passing through. He is actually on his way to Jerusalem. This is his last pass-through, if you will, uh, of all his different journeys and walking around. This is his last trip to Jerusalem. And, and as he's doing that, he finds himself, well, he doesn't find himself, he intentionally goes to Jericho. Uh, Jericho, as you know, is a city that uh, is well known in the Old Testament. In Joshua 6, there's the amazing story of the children of Israel going and marching around the city multiple times, one time a day, and then the, the last day, seven times, and blowing their trumpets, and the walls of Jericho, Jericho found, uh, fell. Um, it was really the first city that Israel took in the promised land. And it's interesting to note that archaeologists believe that Jericho is actually one of the 
cities uh, that have had human beings living in it for the longest period of time. There are only a handful of cities where they're like, there was never a time that humans haven't lived here, and we can date it back to five, 6,000 years from now of how long they've lived there. So it's a very old city by, by our standards. And even in Christ's time, people had lived in Jericho for a very long time. And there's a reason for this. Jericho is a unique area. In fact, Deuteronomy 34 described it as the city of palm trees. Um, and so there were a lot of springs that kind of, the city kind of backs up into a mountainous area. And there were a lot of springs. Uh, water would collect up there and then come down into those areas. It's kind of like where Crystal Geyser gets their water. It's down in the desert, but the water's coming down from the Sierras. What's that? Olancha? Is that what it is just up the road here? Uh, and so in that way, Jericho was a bit of an oasis and people gathered there because of the palms and, and the water. In some ways, it's kind of a, uh, an ancient palm springs. But there was another uh, interesting aspect that there were these trees that grew there that were called balsam trees. And out of those balsam trees, they would get ointment. Uh, they would actually get the sap out of it and they used it as like a healing ointment, a balm. Uh, and that was actually prized by people far and wide. Uh, and this is what helped make it a very wealthy city. So it's no surprise that Zacchaeus is considered a wealthy man. And interesting note, he's a chief tax collector. And I believe this is the only time that it's mentioned that there was a chief tax collector, or that we actually get the story of a chief tax collector. Uh, just before Jesus in, in chapter 18 talks about um, the parable of the Pharisee and the chief tax, uh, the tax collector praying. And there's other times that we see that Jesus sat down with sinners and tax collectors. They kind of went hand in hand in the, that day. But this chief tax collector is someone who was above them all. Uh, and he oversaw what was going on. He was kind of like the, the county supervisor, something in that, in that regards. Uh, and, and perhaps that is why Zacchaeus was so wealthy, because the area was so wealthy. For those who are curious, uh, it, is, it was only about four miles for the Jordan River, about 10 miles from the Dead Sea, and 20 miles from the northeast part of Jerusalem. Of course, in those days, you did all your traveling by walking, so it still was quite a distance to Jerusalem by foot. And as I said, because of this balsam oil, this ointment that would come, uh, Jericho ended up on the trade routes. And so there were people that would travel way outside of um, Israel to come uh, through these trade routes, uh, trade routes to get this balsam. Now, because of this, Jesus is passing through. It is, uh, it is on the way to Jerusalem from Galilee. Uh, and so that really kind of gives us the setting, if you will. Uh, you know, don't just picture some podunk Nazareth town. That's where Jesus was from. That was Podunk. That was out in the, hit, the hills. This would have been a destination. This would have been a place that people would have liked to have visited. So that's the setting. What's the situation? Well, first we know the timing is very pressing. Zacchaeus is one of the last converts in Christ's ministry before he goes to the cross. It's a very unique uh, part of the big gospel story. Uh, by the end of chapter 19, Jesus actually arrives in Jerusalem. It's what we call Palm Sunday today. But here's Jesus just before he gets to Jerusalem coming into Jericho. 
and that's when we meet Zacchaeus. Now, those of us who've grown up in the church or around Christianity or Sunday school or VBS, we all know this name, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. You guys, okay, I'm glad these ladies are laughing. They? Oh, yes, I remember that story. Of course, uh, Lynn, I don't know if you were corrected by Pastor Robert, our Scottish pastor friend, but uh, he said it just, it's, a, it's a, like a double negative, a wee little man. In Scotland, they just use the word wee. They don't use little. So they say, Zacchaeus was a wee man. Um, I don't know why the song says wee little man. It's like a double. Um, it's a double-double. We like double-doubles. Anyways, um, so there's Zacchaeus. We know his story. And as I said, he, he is this chief tax collector. And this means that he was working for Rome. He was collecting the taxes of Rome. These were not just uh, the taxes for, you know, the Jews. This was for the occupying force. And they demanded that their subjects pay them money for their protection, of course. Uh, and, and it makes sense that Jericho would, um, would have one of these tax collectors in the area. Then we see that Zacchaeus, for some reason becomes interested in Jesus. It says that Jesus comes into town. Uh, there's a crowd. We know that Jesus by this time was attracting a lot of people uh, coming into the town. And for whatever reason, Jesus says, huh, I want to I I take a look at this guy. But he had one problem. <laughs> uh, as he tries to get a, a view of Jesus, he couldn't see him. Because the Bible gives us, and this is where Luke is a bit of a journalist. Uh, he, was, he was a man of low stature, <laughs> as the by F1 translation would say. Uh, you know, picture this. It's kind of like a circus coming to town, and I hate comparing that to it, but a presidential motorcade, perhaps. And it's like everybody's kind of like, what's going on over there? And a crowd gathers, and here's Zacchaeus, like, trying to get a view. And people haven't changed much, have they? I mean... <laughs> Whenever there's an accident on the freeway, it's like, whoa, let's, let's see how bad it is. Why are we that way? It's gruesome. Uh, you know, we're instead of like, oh, let me slow down and help, or let me see if I can pray for them, we're like, wow, that was pretty bad. Um, people have not changed. We, we are attracted to spectacles. And so what is the situation here? Why is it that Zacchaeus was interested in even seeing Jesus um, well, we know that Jesus, that people were very keen on him because it had spread far and wide that he could heal. Uh, he, his teachings and his, um, his sermons were of one that had authority that no one had ever heard before. Um, and there's a good chance that Zacchaeus probably was through here before. Perhaps Zacchaeus heard some of what Jesus was teaching. Luke explains in this chapter, and just a chapter before, that as Jesus was approaching Jericho, there was a blind man. We don't know his name, but the great crowd was following Jesus, and this blind man's like, hey, what's going on? Because he could hear. There's a lot of people, and there's a lot of talking. And someone says, oh, uh, it's Jesus, the son of David. He, 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 he's passing through. Or it actually, they said, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And the man's like, what? And he just cries out, Jesus, son of God, or son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus actually 
has, has mercy on him. And it says, and heals him. And, then, and the man sees, and, and Jesus says, it is your faith that has made you well. And so you get a sense that there's this great crowd, and there's a lot of um, commotion that Jesus is here, and that Jesus does great things. So whatever it was about Zacchaeus that day, he thought, I need to go check him out. John Calvin writes this. Some were led, no doubt, by vain curiosity to run even from distant places for the purpose of seeing Jesus. But this event showed that the mind of Zacchaeus contains some seated piety. In this manner, before revealing himself to men, the Lord frequently communicates to them a secret desire by which they are led to him while he is still concealed and unknown and though they have no fixed object in view, he does not disappoint them, but manifests himself in due time. Calvin's point here, I think, is so, so helpful. And perhaps many of you today can say, yeah, yeah, I can relate to that. The Lord often, in communicating to us, in drawing us to himself, does it in such a regular means uh, often it's a regular sort of event that all of a sudden it's like something changes. And there's, a, there's now, I never was interested in Christianity ever. I, ne I never wanted to set a foot in a church. And then all of a sudden I was like, yeah, well, I'll go to that Christmas event. <laughs> or I'll go, you know, check out what that guy has to say. The Lord uses often very regular means to draw us to him. And God is showing his sovereign hand, even in these little details, that even in our sin, that he's working, he's orchestrating, he's bringing us to him. How many of you here could say, with so many other people I, I have talked to over the years, would say, like, I don't know why I didn't get deeper into my sin when I wasn't a Christian, outside of it's God's providence that he just kept me from going head first, because I was willing, but for some reason I didn't. Now, sometimes we do go ahead first and the Lord still pulls us out of that great pit. But nevertheless, the Lord providentially is always working to bring us to him. And so here is Zacchaeus. Instead of counting his money that day, instead of going to King Herod's mud bath spa that day, instead of eating a fine meal, he goes, huh, I want to get a closer look at this guy. But he couldn't. The crowds were all around him. He was little in stature, but there was still something driven in him, like, I want to take a look at this guy. So perhaps he did a little pushing, a little kind of jumping around, and was like, that's not going to work. Then he looks down at the road of where Jesus is going, and he's like, huh, there's that big sycamore tree. You know, sycamore trees in that part of the world, they grow big and broad, and their limbs grow out, like even like over uh, the roads. And if you've ever visited Riverside and driven down Magnolia Avenue, we've got a lot of old trees there and they grow out over the road. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to drive down. And so perhaps there's this great sycamore tree and it, it's reaching out over the road. And Zacchaeus is a smart guy. And he's like, huh, Jesus is heading that way. I'm going to run up to that. I'm going to shimmy up the tree and get out on the branch. I'm going to see him. It's so odd, isn't it? I don't get a sense that this was who Zacchaeus was, but he's like, I got it. See Jesus. So he gets up there, perhaps he's like even, he finally gets there and he's kind of like, what am I doing? <laughs> why, why, why am I up here? But he's like, oh, well, I'm here. Okay, he's, he's heading this way. Surely he's wearing nice clothes. 
And, and, and maybe even thought, oh, my goodness, I hope nobody sees me. Because people knew who he was. In fact, in verse 7, it says that the entire crowd knew him. But he stayed there. And his curiosity put him there. Maybe he was thinking, oh, I'll tell my grandkids about this someday. <laughs> Whatever it was, that brings us now to the surprise. A great surprise. What does it say there in verse 5? And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. For I must stay at your house today. Surely that must have caught Zacchaeus off guard. We have nothing in scripture that says that they've ever met before. There, Zacchaeus is just kind of an outsider trying to get a little peek inside. Kind of any time you've ever happened to... A couple times I've been by presidential motorcades, and you're kind of like, oh, I wonder if I can get a view. Or some of my friends in the United Kingdom, the queen's going by, the king now. Oh, maybe I can get a quick, quick view of the person. But here it is. Jesus says, Zacchaeus. It took probably everything for him not to have fallen out of the tree. It was a shocking turn of events. Imagine what had been racing through his mind. How did he know my name? Why did he say Hurry. Did he really say he's coming to my house? J.C. Ryle writes this. It is impossible to conceive a more striking instance than that before us. Unasked, our Lord stops and speaks to Zacchaeus. Unasked, he offers himself to be a guest in the house of a sinner. Unasked, he sends into the heart of a tax collector the renewing grace of the Spirit. And puts him that very day among the children of God. Now that latter part we'll get to in just a moment. But as I like how Ryle puts it, it was a striking instance. And this shows us the beauty of free grace. Over and over in the scriptures we see stories just like this. Mary Magdalene, she wasn't seeking after Jesus. Peter wasn't seeking after Jesus. Matthew wasn't seeking after Jesus. Most of the apostles' stories are not going out and I want to see who this guy is. Paul, what a great example. But Jesus sought them out. People from all walks of life, different stations in society, but they all shared something in common. They were all sinners, lost in their sins and not having any idea that they needed a savior. We have all fallen and gone astray. We've all sinned and deserved God's judgment. But God, as Adam had just said, and those are my two favorite words in all the Bible too, because time and time and again, Old and New Testament, that scenario set up. It was the bleakest of moments, but God. You were dead in your sins, but God. It's kind of like the I've been watching these new, uh, and I'm not quite sure where I'm at with the rings of power in Tolkien, but Tolkien invented this word called the eucatastrophe. And it's like at the, the greatest moment of despair, when it seems all hope is lost, the eucatastrophe comes through. And, and he can combine two words, the end of catastrophe and euca coming out of Latin for joy, really. So there's this sudden instance of grace this sudden bursting out of nowhere of of joy and that's really what but God is because that's our only hope totally dead in your sins but God the eucatastrophe grace breaks through and Tolkien does such a great job in writing in the 
Lord of the Rings series about those moments. Helm's Deep is probably my, my favorite. And it seems that's it. Man and elves are going to die, and dwarves are going to die together. And then there's Gandalf breaking through, you know, obviously a, a Christ-like figure in literature. I digress. <laughs> but God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our trespasses. It is by grace for which you are saved. Ephesians chapter 2, probably one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. This moment here in Luke 19 is a, a perfect example of even what Paul would write the Romans. In Romans 9, 16, it's playing out in real time. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. The open call of the gospel must be met by the eternal or the internal call of the Spirit. If the Spirit was not effectually calling Zacchaeus here, he would have found an excuse. Guarantee you, he would not be up in that tree. <laughs> and it wasn't as if the Lord is like puppet mastering him there, but it's the Lord working through means and that the Spirit drawing in a way that. Jesus could only describe to us in a way that we go, okay, I think I understand. You know, John chapter 3, that the wind, you know, being compared to the Spirit, it blows here and there. And sometimes we can see it in the trees. You can see it down China Lake Boulevard in the palm trees, but we can't see the wind. But we can see the wind's effect. Oh, the wind is blowing here. And in and the, and, and the same way here, the wind of the Spirit was blowing in such a way to call Zacchaeus to Jesus. And so if the Spirit wasn't doing this, Zacchaeus would have, you know, he would have gone about his day in a normal way. Or he perhaps would have ended up with Jesus at his house and yet become very critical the way that that Pharisee, remember Simon the Pharisee is what we talked about a few months ago when I was here. And the Pharisee invited Jesus in it seems promising. Wow, a Pharisee is going to have dinner with Jesus? Maybe something good's going to happen here. And then the Pharisees just quickly, this guy's not the Messiah. This guy's not a prophet. Who is this guy? He just becomes overly critical. It's very apparent when the Spirit begins to work in someone's life. And it's very apparent here that with Zacchaeus, he leaps out of that tree with joy. He's filled with gladness. Jesus wants to come to my house. Well, let's say there in verse 6. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. Is this not a wonderful explanation of each one of us when we met Christ? There was a joy. There was a gladness to meet with Jesus. Jesus was calling. Jesus knew him. Here's Jesus communing with him. The day began like any normal day for this man, for this chief tax collector. But now the Messiah was in his home, sharing the good news with him. And the good news, through the good news and, and the power of the Spirit, that grace transformed this sinner. In fact, I'd just like to read a little bit about this from the 1689 Confession which I know your church holds to, our church does as well, as a statement of faith, a very helpful statement of faith. And in chapter 10, as it's talking about the effectual call of the Spirit, um, 
in paragraph two, let me just read you a little bit of it. It says, this effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone and not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature, being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins as we just read in Ephesians 2 and our trespasses until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is thereby, thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. Brothers and sisters, that last part there is so important for us to understand. It's hard to be a Calvinist in this modern day and age. Um, because there's a false view of what that really means. People think it's instantly hyper-Calvinism. We don't believe in evangelism. We don't believe in preaching the gospel. We, we don't believe in, in, in humans saying, yes, I have decided to follow Jesus. We believe in that. And you might be going, hold on. I don't understand that. Well, that's what Pastor Lynn ministered to me 20 years ago when I came to church. He's like, I believe in free will, uh, but only so far as what our will... How did you say it? Ah, I'm blanking out now. But only so far as our, uh, what our wills are, are, are predisposed towards. And the Bible over and over says we are predisposed towards sin. But this is what happens in this effectual call. Is that the Holy Spirit begins to work in our lives. And he begins to change our disposition. And that's what really happens when our hearts are regenerated. No longer just seeking to please ourselves. Now we have a heart that, and in that moment of regeneration, sometimes we're aware of it very, very quickly. Others, it's a season. My son, by God's grace, was just baptized last week at our church. And in his testimony, he shared that it was, uh, uh, how'd you put it, son? It was a, a season of coming to the Lord. It was over a long period of time that he saw at one point, he just wanted the sermon to be done so he could go play with his friends. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, the message seemed interesting and the Bible seemed interesting. And Jesus seemed like worthy of his time to consider. And at some point over the last couple of years, the Lord saved him. And he saw his need for a Savior, that he was indeed a sinner and, and Christ is the only way. And, and in his baptism last week, it was an open for profession to the world that he decided to follow Jesus. But we know as we're looking at the scriptures, that was because the Lord uh, liberated his will. <laughs> there was a bondage on his will. Sin was there. That's why he only wanted to go play with his friends and was bored with the sermons. But then when that will was set free, he did choose to follow Jesus. And it was the best choice ever. It's the only choice. Um, Jesus talks about this in John chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What we're talking about, Christian, is not just a choice. It is not just a religion. It's not just a, oh, that seems like a, a healthy way to live. We're talking about the dead coming back to life. 
This is the story of Christianity. For we have a Savior who lived as a man, willingly came to live as a man. He set aside heaven to live as a man. And he died like a sinner. And he was really dead. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I'm constantly emphasizing that because I need it. Like, I was at a funeral yesterday, and my brother Mark is really dead. We're not going to be back at Riverside tonight, and he'll be back in the sound booth where he often was. I'm not going to see him this side of heaven. That's the kind of dead we're talking about. Jesus was dead. But what do the scriptures teach us? Over and over and over, he rose again. And it over and over is communicated to us that it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul loves to remind us, even as Ephesians 2, as he communicates this in Ephesians 2, that when we come to know Jesus, we are experiencing a resurrection, a soul that was dead, not a mind that doesn't make choices. I, will I have chocolate or vanilla today? Will I put on an Argyle sweater because it's a little cold today? Well, who will I marry? No, those are all choices you make on your own volition, to use an ancient word. But you had no capacity to choose to glorify God in what you wanted to do. Maybe you were religious. Maybe you wanted to do good things. And we all kind of have a, a common standard of laws inscribed in our hearts. We kind of know a basic right and wrong. There's no culture in the world that you go to. Uh, and if you steal the guy's banana, he's going to go, oh, well. No, they, we, we know stealing is wrong. There's no culture in the world that goes murdering is okay. Now, there's some barbaric cultures. Think of some Central American cultures where there were some horrific sacrifices of humans that were done. But it was all still justified because it was for a deity. If you've just walked up and stabbed somebody out of nowhere, they're, what are you doing? This is wrong. We have a general sense of good, but we had no ability to do that on our own until the power of the Spirit regenerated our hearts. That, that, that literally is bringing it back to life, giving it new life. And so as our confession says, this is done by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. And that's why when I look out at every single Christian here, I'm like, wow, I'm looking at a miracle. When I look in the mirror, I'm like, you're an absolute, this is a miracle, God. I don't deserve this. So Zacchaeus, his call and his response are very surprising. But there's another surprise here as well. In some ways, you would have thought the crowd would have been excited. It says in the chapter 4 that when the blind man was healed, they were excited about it. But something strange happens here. When Jesus says he's coming to his house, and when he goes to his house, it says that they grumbled about it. Ugh. He's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Now, I said tax collectors were hated. We know this. I found it interesting that John Calvin points out in his commentary that there wasn't anything inherently wrong with being a tax collector. Now, all of us are like, well, I don't know, I don't like the IRS. But 
I don't like unjust taxes, but I do like the road that I just drove here, and I didn't have to build a bridge several times over gullies, or I had to repave and so forth. But anyways, taxes have their place. That's not what we're discussing here, but we understand it, right? We all go, oh, every March and April when we're preparing for our taxes. It's, it's a, at times, feels overwhelming. But Calvin points out it's a, it was a legitimate job. There wasn't anything that violated the scriptures in doing the job so long as you did it right and you weren't manipulating and stealing and, and, and taking from people, which we know tax collectors did. It didn't violate God's law to be a tax collector. But Jewish society utterly despised it because of his employer. And it was Rome. As I said, the occupying force of their country. They wanted to be rid of Rome. They saw them as complete Gentile dogs that were corrupting their culture. And in that way, too, most tax collectors were known to be somewhat corrupt. Calvin writes, we, we know how hateful, nay, how detestable the name of a publican, which is an old way of calling him a tax collector, at this time was. It is therefore astonishing kindness in the Son of God to approach a man from whom the great body of men recoil and that before he is requested to do so. Once again, we have another story of Jesus involving himself in the life of a sinner. The story of that woman who was known as a great sinner. Her reputation preceded her just like that. Zacchaeus' reputation preceded him. But Jesus involved himself with these sinners. Early in Jesus' ministry, we know that the, the Pharisees and scribes actually challenged him. Why do you spend so much time? Matthew 9, the calling of Levi, we call him Matthew. Um, he was a tax collector. And that night, Jesus is having dinner with Matthew and, and, and some of his friends, other tax collectors, other sinners. And the Pharisees are like, hey, why does your teacher eat with these tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' response is precious. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's interesting to note that almost three years later, it's not the Pharisees that are grumbling now. It's the people. As Jesus goes into the home of Zacchaeus, it's the crowds, these very crowds that were attracted to him, that marveled at him. But now some of them seem to have what they felt like was a legitimate complaint. Without a doubt, Zacchaeus cheated people. But it also shows us how fickle this crowd was. Daryl Bach points this out. Grumbling is almost always a negative concept in the New Testament. The complaint about Jesus staying with sinners shows that the crowd had learned little from his ministry. And that's striking because Jesus is just about to enter to his last week in Jerusalem. He's just about to go to the cross. He has ministered all over for three years. John says we, we don't, we, they didn't have the ability to collect everything. It was just too much. I wish we did. Wouldn't it be amazing to have multiple sermons of Jesus in a, in a book for us to open up? 
but the Lord has given us enough. And that's the same thing for these people. Jesus ministered time and time again. He, he ministered with the, the healing signs and wonders that the prophet Joel and other prophets said the Messiah would come with. He spoke with authority the word of God like no one had ever heard before. He called out sin. He called out hypocrisy. He proclaimed the kingdom of God was at hand. He came to seek and save the lost. And yet here these people are going, oh, why are you wasting your time with that tax collector, that sinner? Oh, Jesus, you don't get it. Just liberates from Rome already. And if there ever was a lost sinner, it was Zacchaeus. But rather than rejoice that Jesus was seeking him out, they were grumbling. You know, just before Jesus, and this is just a little later here in chapter 19, just before he enters into Jerusalem, just before they all, in one of the gospels it says like the entire city came out. I know it's a bit of perhaps hyperbole, but it was like for us to understand like, it was a lot of people that were rejoicing that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. Just before this moment, he's looking out over the city. And he weeps. Only this, the second uh, place that this is recorded of Jesus uh, weeping in this sense. We know he wept when Lazarus died. And here he weeps as well. Would that you, even you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of peace. And he wasn't talking about Rome being kicked out and, and peace being brought to the physical world. Something far greater. Peace with his heavenly father. His ministry was to come and seek and save those who were at war with God. Their sins had separated them from God. But we know that a majority, a good majority of Israel rejected him at the end of that week. <laughs> Give us the murderer <laughs> instead of the Savior. But not Zacchaeus. So we, we, we had a bit of the setting, uh, the situation, the, the great surprise, a double surprise in some ways. And now we come to the end. We talk about Zacchaeus' salvation. This is what happened. Zacchaeus is one that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Just like you were once lost and Jesus saved you, Zacchaeus is your brother. And it's interesting that we don't have much insight of how this dinner went. A couple of commentators said that Jesus came to stay at his house, and this could have meant that he stayed the night, maybe even a couple of days. That's the bit of their culture. It was a hospitality culture. Come and stay with me. Come and abide with me. Jesus uses these words, too, about abiding with him. It's very hospitable. Stay with me. Zacchaeus was a wealthy man, so perhaps he had a, a wonderful compound. You can only picture some of the 
Roman movies you've seen, right? Gladiator or something. Some interior courtyard with fountains running and servants all around. I mean, imagine Zacchaeus. I mean, he's like, even though he's short, he was moving quick. And he gets ahead. Servants, 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 quick, get the hummus, get the pita, let's eat. Um, I like hummus and pita, by the way. Grab the kebabs. We're having a party tonight. Whatever it was, we know that Zacchaeus was very hospitable to Jesus here. And the Holy Spirit doesn't give us this insight. Oh, that we could be a fly on that wall. What, where did Jesus start? What questions did Zacchaeus have? All we know is that Jesus said, I'm coming to your house, and that Zacchaeus received him joyfully. But we do know. The Holy Spirit wants us to know this. Verse 8, 9, and 10. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I've given to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So we see almost instantly a transformed man. We see in some ways the fruit of repentance in his life. As Ephesians 2 reminds us over and over and over, we're saved by grace, grace through faith in Christ alone. But verse 10 of Ephesians 2 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works prepared beforehand. And these good works weren't Zacchaeus trying to, Jesus, look at all the good stuff I'm doing. Would you please be my savior? No, it began to work with him instantly. Instantly, he's like, I have cheated these people. I have become so wealthy from all of this. I mean, right off the bat, he's like, I've given half of my wealth to the poor. I mean, was that he's running in, he's talking to his cook. Get the kebab, forget the kebabs, get the fatted calf and get the, you know, he's telling the food and then instantly he's like, you know what, go, I need half of my money to go, you know, he's talking to his accountant to go to the poor. I don't know how it worked out, but he's like already ordered these things to be in place. And he points out that he is going to restore fourfold to those who he had wronged, those who he cheated. Even the civil law of the Old Testament said only one-fifth restitution. He's going fourfold. Ah, Jacob. Okay, here's the deal. The last five years, you really only owed five denarii a year, but I said 20. So 20 times four, however it works. I'm not an accountant. Here, this is, this is yours. I'm sorry for the hurt, and I want to I wanna make amends for it. I want to be a blessing to you. We read that Zacchaeus seeks to right the wrongs that he has done. And he, he's done so abundantly, out of an abundance of his heart, out of an abundance of what Christ has already done in his life. And he does something that, that's not required at all. Giving half of his food or half of his wealth to the poor, that wouldn't have been required of the old law. All of this shows the joy of salvation. I like what Brian Chappelle writes as he explains repentance the evidence of complete repentance is not the stereotypical stereotypical gritted teeth and grinding resolve or even groaning or groveling the reverberations of repentance sounds more like singing 
not groveling. Yes, God can lead us through a dark night of the soul to enable us to see and to grieve our sins. And perhaps some of us were like that. The conviction of sin. Oh, Lord, I am horrific. I do deserve wrath. I deserve, deserve your judgment. But when we have understood, trusted, and received the free grace of repentance, rejoicing fills our hearts. Biblical repentance renews in us thanksgiving and gratitude for God's mercy. Knowing his pardon, we delight to serve him with a childlike love and a willing mind. Repentance renews joy. That is good news. We're not like some of these, it always grieves me every Easter to see, I think it's in the Philippines, people nailed to crosses or whipping themselves. I mean, what are you doing? Jesus said it is finished. You don't have to grovel, repent and rejoice. And that's what we see here in Zacchaeus. Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. That's what Jesus says. Christ's mission is very clear. He came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus had lived for himself. He was one of those lost sheep, but his good shepherd sought him out and brought him into the fold. Brothers and sisters, I pray that this story encourages you. As I said, I think, a couple months ago, and I just said it at our church as I did Psalm 23 for our communion last week, too often we become so familiar with these stories. We put Zacchaeus on the children's shelf. No, no, no. This story is for us, adults. All of the Gospels are for us. It's not just a, a one-time read and, okay, great, I know those stories. <laughs> All of the stories from Joseph to Daniel, to David, from Zacchaeus, uh, to Lazarus, to, to Paul. All of these stories point us towards God's amazing grace, even in our own lives. I pray that you are renewed and rejuvenated in your faith, even now. Jesus sought you out. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he sought you out. And he continues to watch over you and, and to care for you. And though we often feel little like Zacchaeus in this world, don't we? I think as Christians, even more than we have in, in many decades before, sometimes can be, feel like we're being pushed to the edge. Jesus knows your name. Jesus knows your situation. In fact, providentially, you are where you are for his glory. <laughs> for such a time as this, Dear Christian, we were born into this nation that we see such secularization happening. We shouldn't be like, oh, Lord, why? Why couldn't I have lived in the 1950s? It was all good then. No, talk to people who were school kids in the 1950s and ask them about the nuclear bomb duck and cover test that they did in school. Like that was going to do anything. Um, <laughs> No, there never was a good time. We live in a fallen world. There might have been better times, perhaps times when, you know, people would at least saw Christianity as a, a, a helpful part of society. And we may be heading towards a time now where, I mean, I see this more regular than not. Christianity is evil. 
Christianity makes people do things that are horrible and, and go against themselves. They're like, you're right about that. <laughs> Praise God for that. He doesn't leave us to ourselves. Your good shepherd knows where you're at. He sees you, whether you're short or tall. You're not lost in the crowds. And he continues to call to us by name daily. Sometimes we don't hear it or we choose not to hear it and we try to go out into our day in our own strength. And boy, that doesn't work out well. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you, anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus said these words to Christians, to Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Now, I know it gets twisted in modern evangelical that it's a calling to the non-Christian. This is actually calling to the Christian. Jesus is calling to us daily, just like Zacchaeus. I'm knocking at the door. Hear my voice. I'll come in. I'll commune with you. I mean, and let me tell you, his banquet is grand. All over the Old Testament, the promises of the gospel banquet are rich. They use words like fatted beef and, and rich marrow and, and the finest of wines. I know I sound like a dwarf in Lord of the Rings. The gospel's greater than that. At Psalm 23, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's us today. We've got enemies all around us, but don't They've been conquered by our good shepherd who walked ahead of us in the valley of the shadow of evil alone and yet rose again. We're not going through this alone. The banquet of the gospel is prepared for us daily to enjoy. So take up. I'm preaching myself. It is so rich what the Lord has given us and yet we just become too familiar with it. Lord, plow up our hearts so that we can rejoice once again. Psalm 51, restore unto me the joy of your salvation and renew within me a right heart. And you might be here, perhaps some of the younger folks, perhaps a visitor, they don't know Jesus. You're here, perhaps uh, someone invited you. you. You're out on that sycamore tree. Well, let's just see what this Jesus is all about. Well, you've heard his mission. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to take the burdens of the lost, those who are weary with their sins. And you know what he says? Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. It's the best invitation in the world. Do you see the joy that entered into Zacchaeus' life? The same joy can be yours today repent. This simply means just turning to Jesus, confessing our sin, realizing, yeah, I do stand before a holy God and I, I'm lacking. But Jesus did it all. He lived the perfect life I couldn't live. He died on the cross taking the wrath that should have been mine. Judgment for, for violating God's laws. He took that. It should have been mine. And he rose again. And if he has the power to rise physically from the dead, the same spirit that did that, it's the same spirit who today can raise your soul from the dead.
give you new life and fill you with gladness for eternity. Salvation can be yours today. Oh, that the Lord would give you ears to hear. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. Oh, Lord, I'm so thankful you called Luke to be an investigator, a bit of a journalist, to go and find these precious stories. And Lord, of course, we know it was your spirit leading, it was your spirit inspiring, so that even now, 2,000 years later, in Ridgecrest, California, thousands upon thousands of miles from where this happened, we can read about it, we can rejoice in it, and perhaps, Lord, we can even repent and find Christ as our Savior. Lord, do that great work that we cannot do. Do the calling that we cannot do. Lord, we are your earthen vessels saved by grace. All we can do is be great heralds proclaiming the good news. Lord, you have to do the work, so we pray you would, both in the hearts of those who follow you, Lord, as well as those who don't know you. We pray this in your most precious and mighty name, Jesus. Amen.